Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I am joined, uh, as always, by my partner in this uh, strategic enterprise, Elliot Cohen, who's the Robert Osgood Professor at the School for Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for International Studies. And welcome, Elliot, from your perch in Jerusalem. Well, thank you. It's uh, good to be with you. I'm here on a writing retreat at a, um, a beautiful place run by the Jerusalem Foundation, Mishkanot uh, Shananim, but I would not miss a uh, an opportunity to participate in a Shield of the Republic podcast. So here I am. Today is a special episode where you and I uh, get to chew over uh, the events of the war in Ukraine, uh, about which both of us have written uh, separately, uh, you and two terrific pieces, one two weeks ago in The Atlantic, and then more recently in Foreign Affairs, and I with uh, my occasional co-author and colleague, uh, our colleague from government, Frank Miller, uh, in The Bulwark. Let me turn to your Atlantic piece, uh, which had the title, This is the War's Decisive Moment. And you talk about the war now entering a fourth, and in your view, decisive phase. Explain what you mean by that. So, uh, you know, the the initial phase uh, was one in which the Russians put all the pieces on the table, positioned everything just so, and thought they would be able to take uh, Ukraine and to overthrow the Zelensky government, as we now know, attempted to kill him uh, and possibly members of his family, in the expectation that this would be done by a coup de main in uh, over in three days with an airborne assault uh, onto the Ukrainian airport in uh, Kiev. That, of course, failed. Um, so that was phase one. Phase two was they decided to then make it a conventional onslaught, particularly directed towards Kyiv, but really around the entire periphery of uh, Ukraine in the north, the east, and the south. That also failed uh, much more bloodily, as we know. There was a third phase where they basically began repositioning their forces, pulled uh, all their forces out of the north, repositioned them. And the fourth phase now is one where they're launching a set of offensives in the south and the east, pretty clearly with, with the purpose in mind to do at least two things. I think one is to really destroy the, the best Ukrainian units, which have always been in the Donbass region, but secondly, to seize the southern part of uh, Ukraine, perhaps all the way up to and through Odessa. And my guess is that's going to fail too. They have a different set of challenges than they did when they launched the uh, the large onslaught on Kiev. They've got shorter supply lines, and they're using much more, even more artillery and rocket fire than they did before, and they are making slow and limited progress. But my, to, you know, cut to the what I think the chase is, I think what's going to happen is they will exhaust themselves. They didn't really give their units time to retrain, reorganize, reset. They never really took an operational pause. I mean, they continued to keep on attacking. 
somebody I follow on Twitter, Trent uh, Talenko, said it's it's like feeding your hand into a meat grinder one finger at a time. And I think that's, in a way, what they've been doing. They'll have some success. Undoubtedly, they're inflicting horrific damage and horrific losses on the Ukrainians. But that's going to peter out at a certain point. And I do think there'll be a Ukrainian counterattack or a series of counterattacks. They already do that on a tactical level. In the, in the Izium area. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, who knows where it'll go from there. And the, for me, the, 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 there are a couple of striking things here. First of all, the, the utter barbarity of Russian behavior. We know the leveling of cities, the use of rape as a policy, not just as something that uh, you know criminal soldiers do. The depopulation, uh, deportation, looting, uh, looting, pillaging, and now uh, the latest thing I, that I was reading about was mining of agricultural fields, so that farmers uh, trying to cultivate Ukrainian soil find themselves getting blown up. So, so it's it's quite extraordinary. We haven't seen anything like this since the Wehrmacht tour in the uh, on the Eastern Front. So that's that's one thing that strikes me. But the other thing that strikes me is you know the West is finally beginning to act on the scale that it needed to act, and there is a steady flow, and there will be a steady flow of Western military hardware, and apparently I don't know, but I believe it, uh, Western intelligence that's going to the Ukrainians. And that, in the long run, I think, tilts things in their direction. That's how it looks to me. How does it look to you? Uh, you know, I agree uh, with everything you said, including and and the. It, I mean, you're the military historian. Tell me if you think I've got this wrong. It looks to me that what they're trying to do in the East is uh, what you uh, folks call a double envelopment, trying to move down from the Kharkiv salient that they've created. And they hope to do is move up from Mariupol to cut off the joint force operation, which is where the main, as you said, Ukrainian fighters have been in the Donbass for the last eight years and uh, cut off and kill that uh, military force. It looks to me like they lack the manpower to be able to do that, even when they are able, if they are able to completely reduce the uh, Azovstal steel plant, where the Ukrainian resistance in Mariupol is holed up. The 12 battalion tactical groups that they have devoted to that uh, are going to be, A, tied up, uh, continuing to occupy the area, and B, very, very beaten up. Coming down from Kharkiv, uh, you know, we've talked about the slow and kind of incremental progress they've made taking a few villages, but uh, you also see this pattern of uh, counterattacks around Izium by the uh, Ukrainians, and there's a potential they it seems to me, tell me if you think I've got this wrong, there's a potential for them to be able to cut off uh, some of the supply lines that the Russians have gotten exposed. And that's been their Achilles heel all along, the logistics. Talenko, who you were talking about, uh, who I follow on Twitter as well, is actually quite expert on logistics. And he's talked about a lot how frayed the um, and frail the Russian logistical lines are. I mean, their, their tactical objectives, Slavyansk, which is a transit hub and Kramatorsk, which is the capital of the Donetsk uh, region, uh, I think are probably going to be outside, you know, outside their grasp. In in the south, I think there's also a, an effort at a kind of double envelopment. We know that they seem to have flirted with but abandoned the idea of a, a amphibious operation to take uh, Odessa. And I think that's in part because 
they already have shown that they're not very good at combined arms operations involving land and air power. To try to do something that involves land, air, and sea power, which as you know, is perhaps one of the most difficult things to do militarily, I think they may have realized was beyond their their ability. Moreover, the sinking of the Moskva by, uh, by the Ukrainians with their uh, Neptune missiles uh, has forced the, the Black Sea fleet uh, further back away from the shore. But they do seem to have this uh, objective of capturing Odessa and cutting off landlocking Ukraine. And we know that from the discussion that General Minikayev had in a press conference a few days ago uh, in, in Moscow. And I see the events with the, the threatening language about Moldova, the 12,000 troops they have in Transnistria. I think they still harbor some idea of coming up through Mikolaev uh, with the forces that they've had move in from Crimea into southern Ukraine, and then perhaps create some uh, false flag, as you know we know from some of the explosions that have gone on in Tiraspol and in Transnistria to drag Moldova into this conflict and bring those troops down to envelop uh, Odessa, I think that will fail as well. Does that make sense to you? It makes sense. So I guess the, the thing the thing that doesn't make sense is what do they think they're doing and why do they think it'll work? You know, this all has a very World War II feel to it. You know, we're going to have big enveloping operations. Right. But there are a couple of things about it that um, you have to ask. First, I mean, in general... As we've discussed before, the Russian forces are not all that large. I mean, they're trying to take over a country the size of France with 200,000 troops, with a lot fewer than that. I mean, if, you know, the Brits are now saying they've lost over 15,000 killed. You have to assume, because of their terrible medical care and the nature of um, some of the casualties that they take, that it's only a multiple of maybe two wounded per kill. That's still, that means they've, you know, they have about 40,000 men who've been taken off the battlefield um, and they don't have vast reserves behind that. So they're, they're trying to do a kind of classic World War II style double envelopment. They don't have control of the air. That I think is actually one of the things that's most striking. And we've talked about this before. And so the Ukrainians are able to move in these areas. The third thing that, that I think is very striking you know, the, the, the tools of war have changed. And it's clear that the Ukrainians are just a lot more sophisticated when it comes to particularly use of artillery and increasingly rocket fire. And the, you know, the, this is quite different from World War II. I mean, today, if you can geolocate a target uh, with a drone or human observation, um, and you're within range of just conventional artillery, you can kill it. I mean, the Ukrainians actually have told us that they're, most of the, the targets that they've taken out have been with artillery, not right. javelins and things like that, as good as they are. So I think the Ukrainians are actually fighting this in a rather different way. And one of the many mistakes that military analysts have made is they said, okay, this is going to be World War II-style conflict, tank armies wheeling around the steppe. And I just think that that somehow misses some very fundamental things that have changed um, about this very kind of very, very intense uh, form of warfare. And it doesn't mean that tanks are obsolete or anything like that, but, but it does mean it's a different style of, of warfare. Right. No, I, I, no, I quite agree. I'm glad you went to the artillery point and because it gets also to the question of intelligence sharing that uh, you mentioned as well. 
And it does appear from reports that have emerged in the last couple of days that the U.S. has been sharing some really quite good tactical intelligence with the Ukrainians, which, among other things, enabled them to move various uh, of their air defense and artillery systems out of harm's way so that the Russians uh, who had them on their target list were essentially firing artillery and missiles into empty fields. Uh, which was good for the Ukrainians, obviously. And then, as you say, also queuing these counter-artillery fires that also seem to have been aided by uh, some of the ISR that the uh, Ukrainians are getting from the uh, TB2 Bayraktar uh, drones, as well as, I think, some other uh, drones that they're using. And I'd like to draw attention, actually, because I think both of us uh, have probably benefited from the study by the Royal United Services Institute by Jack Watling and Nick Reynolds on Operation Z, which is one of, I think, the better things I've seen, because it's based on a lot of interviews with Ukrainian officers who have been in the fight. Do do you agree that that's one of the better pieces that's come out? I do think it's one of the better things. I still think the Ukrainians have actually been very good about not sharing a whole lot of information about what their losses have been, what what their units are like, that sort of thing. So we, we don't actually know how badly damaged they've been. I think what we do know is that their combat motivation is as high as it can possibly be, because they're, you know, the, the Russians have decided to really wage this as a war of extermination. And, and I find, you know, as we, as we talk about what's going forward, I mean, on the one hand, this is an extraordinary motivator for the Ukrainians. And it's one of the reasons why I continue to think that ultimately they will achieve major successes, how large you and I can, can discuss. But, but particularly, you know, Eric, since you spent time in Moscow, are, are you surprised or what is your judgment of some of the, you know, what really sounds like kind of lunatic rhetoric coming out of people who are quite prominent, like Sergei Petrushev um, and others? I mean, I, not just the, you know, these kind of howling hyenas on Russian state TV, although they are, they are bad enough, uh, but some of the others that are out there. You know, like Sergei Kataganov's interview with the New Statesman, which was, you know, shared in this sort of contact lunacy of, you know, Russian greatness and Russian civilization standing against the West. Look, you know, Russia f- for hundreds of years has been riven by debates between Westernizers and Slavophiles. And Putin has, you know, created this huge Slavophile uh, Eurasianist discourse, which is now broadly shared, unfortunately, among the elites who've been able to survive the re- you know increasing repression of the regime, uh, and it's the only way they seem capable of thinking about the world, despite the fact that I think it's completely disconnected from uh, the realities on the uh, battlefield. We, I want to turn to your piece on your terrific piece on uh, the return of statecraft in foreign affairs. But before we leave, actually, could, could I interrupt you with with a question? Sure. Back to you, just on. So, you know, you're absolutely right. Uh, Slavophiles versus Westernizers. This goes back. Some people would say back to uh, Peter the Great, even. But, but I guess the thing that strikes me is that after this, Russia will first. It's going to be sort of a pariah state in many ways. Yeah. And and it will really have the mark of Cain on it. And I that's a metaphor I use advisedly, because what Cain d- did was to murder his brother. Right. And and you, it's this it, is a terrible thing to say, but people, you know, will can choose to ignore uh, Russian brutality towards Syria or Chechnya. But but this 
the dimensions and ferocity and barbarity and cruelty of this onslaught against people who they were talking about as their brothers. Right. Um, isn't that taking it one step much further? And doesn't that have implications? Yeah, well, so a couple of thoughts. One is, you know, you've talked about the hyenas on state TV like Solovyov and Simonyan, who are essentially espousing and using a kind of, you know, eliminationist uh, rhetoric that is paradoxically uh, very, very redolent of, you know, the final solution for the Jews during World War II, despite the fact that they're the ones who are claiming that it's uh, Ukrainian Nazis who they're who they're fighting. I mean, it's it's uh, maybe the greatest um, example of psychological projection you know I've ever seen. But whether that will continue to rule kind of people's consciousness in in Russia, and it it might well because he has got such dominance of the airwaves and print media in Russia. Whether that will survive what appears to be an effort by the Ukrainians to bring the war home to Russians, these eleven strikes that have taken place in places like Bryansk and Belgorod and, and Voronezh with exploding fuel depots and arms, you know, depots, et cetera. Uh, I, I, I don't know if, you know, as the war drags on, it's not clear to me that, you know, this will uh, stand up and, you know, whether we and Ukrainians and others will be able to kind of pierce the, the veil of propaganda that has led people to believe this. Uh, it's very, very effective. I mean, you, I'm sure, have seen the same stories I have of of people in Ukraine calling relatives in uh, Russia who see the war in, in a completely different light than the others who are trying to explain to them what's actually happening. But because all they see is what is on Russian state TV, they, you know, believe uh, the lies that are characterizing, you know, Russian propaganda. You even see it, by the way, in the Donbass, because most of those people only see Russian TV. So even people who are subject to what the Russians are doing are sometimes saying, you know, uh, this is, you know, denazification, et cetera. Before we leave, you know, your terrific article in The Atlantic, you say in it that the Americans are going to need to press for much larger sums in tens of billions of dollars for the Ukrainian military and that it's moved too slowly to procure for Ukraine the heavier kinds of weapons that it knows are needed. So my question to you is, is the package of $33 billion in assistance and the new emphasis on heavy weapons, howitzers, 144,000 rounds of artillery, ammunition, et cetera, is that enough or are we going to need more? So I, there's no way to tell whether it's enough. But, but for me, the thing that's really heartening about it is it's the right scale. You know, until now, I've, I have felt that we were just not thinking on the right scale. And, you know, tens of billions, well, 33 billion is, is in that realm. I think, the, you know, the other thing that I've been pressing is that there needs to be a sense of urgency, which means that we'll do creative things. It's one of the reasons why it's tremendously heartening that the House passed this uh, Ukraine Lend-Lease Act. It was a heartening mm-hmm. back to World War II, uh, which allows us to, quote unquote, loan uh, weapons to the Ukrainians. Now, you know, what that's telling you, I, I don't know if that'll actually allow us to release more weapons or not. I hope it does. But but what it tells you is that there's a sense of urgency there. And by the way, bipartisan urgency. There were only 10 congressmen who voted against it, all of them Republicans, but, but overwhelming majorities on both, uh, in both camps in favor of it. So I would say, yeah. And, and I also think, you know, that I suspect that 
the uh, visit by Secretaries Blinken and Austin to Kyiv made a big difference. I think there's something, as you and I both know, from being there, being on the ground, looking people in the eye, um, and those have to have been very emotional, emotionally charged meetings, even when they're a business. And you do sort of get the sense that, particularly with Secretary Austin, that it there was something invigorating about it. Um, does that make sense to you? You know, it does. And it may also be the case that I think it was Churchill who said there's nothing more invigorating than being shot at without result. The fact that after their trip by train to Kiev, the Russians hit five train stations that they had just passed through may also make this a little more personal for the, uh, for Secretaries Blinken and, and Austin. Yeah, I agree. But I, look, I think we're on, the, we're on the right track. There's going to need to be a lot more. The next big heavy item that they probably will need, that they do need is uh, some form of rocket launcher, probably the HIMARS system, which is uh, smaller than the standard multiple launch rocket system. And the reason why those are important is because they have much longer range. And uh, what you can do is, with those, you could really reach out and neutralize a lot of the Russian artillery. One tactical point I think that's important to make you know, with, with modern means of detection, whether it's through drones or um, these artillery-finding radars, which can, through the flight of the shell, tell you where it was fired from, what everybody needs to be able to do, and this goes for headquarters as well as artillery units, is to shoot and scoop. You know, you don't stay anywhere right. for more than a few hours. Uh, and once you've begun firing, you pack up and leave quickly. Yeah, because well, if, you're you're mo- if you're not moving, you're dead. If you're not moving, you're dead. But, you know, that's not easy to do. Right. I mean, it's so much of war is like a very complicated plumbing problem. And to do all the things that you need to do to make that work, you have to have a lot of sergeants and officers who can exercise initiative and make things happen. And the indications would seem to be that the Ukrainians have that in a way that the Russians do not. I do want to get to grand strategy, but I, 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 your comments prompt me to say that one of the more positive signs I've seen in the last couple of days has been, first, uh, Secretary Austin's statement that we want to see uh, Russia uh, weaken so it can't continue to commit aggression against Ukraine. I know there are a lot of, there's a lot of pearl clutching and hand-wringing that he said the quiet part out loud and he shouldn't have said it because India and others will fall prey to Russian blandishments and arguments that you know, it's always been about weakening Russia and not about Ukraine. But I, I think it's important that he reaffirm an objective that our friend uh, Victoria Newland has already testified to in front of Congress, which is that the objective is to uh, seek Putin's strategic failure in this uh, aggression. And the other encouraging sign has been the statements by Secretary Blinken actually justifying, in the face of Russian complaints, the Ukrainians' uh, strikes into Russia and bringing the you know war home to the Russians. Blinken said, yes, of course, you know, they can uh, hit military targets in Russia. The Russians have invaded them and uh, they're fighting a, a defensive war. That to me is a real break with some of the uh, what you call in your article self-deterring language and rhetoric that we'd seen previously. Yes, I agree. Let's turn to grand strategy, if there is such a thing, which you have for many years contested uh, in discussions uh, between the two of us. But your foreign affairs article, which calls for the return of statecraft and the abandonment of these sort of oversimplifying 
grand strategic dicta. First of all, it's it's really terrific. You start by talking about something that, uh, as you know, I've written about, I wrote about 10 years ago, which is the notion that American primacy in the world in the post-Cold War era, which we clearly entered after the 2008-9 Great Recession, but which I think was obscured for a lot of people uh, during the Obama administration, but it's quite clear now, uh, was one where American America still remained primus inter pares, but its primacy was uh, contested. And what you say is for the foreseeable future, we're going to remain uh, perhaps the, the most powerful with a lot of things uh, going for us, the most experienced military on the planet, lots of allies, the history of, of resilience, uh, both against economic and other setbacks. But as you say, relative decline is still still a fact. And you say, after decades of relying on big strategic ideas, um, we need to move to statecraft rather than grand strategy, by which you mean uh, fine-grained comprehension of the world, the ability to quickly detect and respond to challenges, a penchant for exploiting opportunities as they arrive, and nimble institutions for the formulation and conduct of foreign policy. Talk a little bit about this and how you came to this view. So uh, I guess a, a point of clarification, I mean, I do think there ha- you have to have some big ideas. Uh, you, you know, you can't simply stumble through foreign policy without having a, a, any ideas. But, but one thing which I sort of thought before I went into government, uh, but that, you know, you and uh, many of my colleagues in effect taught me there was the ideas are fine. All policy stands and falls by implementation. And implementation is so much more important quite often than the animating ideas. And the animating ideas are completely useless without competent um, uh, implementation. And, and it just, it just it, maybe it's part of developing more of a historical sensibility, uh, unless that of a political scientist. You see, you know, what difference does it make if you have really effective individuals who are out there making things happen? So I'm, I, I also, uh, I think the other thing that's really struck me was the, the way in which our supposed grand strategy of the pivot to Asia, which has been in the works now, I would say really since the Obama administration, mm-hmm. you know, collapsed overnight. Um, I think the way I put it in the article was that, uh, to paraphrase Mike Tyson's famous dictum, everybody's got a grand strategy until Putin invades Ukraine, that you know, the world is just going to deal you surprises. And I think that's, a, that's another thing. Given the structure of international politics, given the multiple things that are going on, technological change, pandemics, climate change, you're just not going to be able to have a stable set of ideas governing the conduct of your foreign policy and perhaps the way that was possible immediately after uh, World War II. Now, the last thing I'd say is that, you know, I'm, I have been struck by, uh, and one of the motivations for writing the article, just how dismal our performance has been in some areas. And in the areas where our performance has been good, it has been competent execution. We, we talked about this before. You know, on the whole, the administration did very well in the run-up to the Ukraine crisis. Um, they did very well in managing the diplomacy. That wasn't about grand strategy. That was 
about a lot of hard diplomatic work and some very adroit use. Uh, blocking and tackling. Of, yeah, it's the blocking and tackling that really matters. Um, and while I, I give them full credit for that, but, but we have a long, long way to go. Just at one example from this war right now. We should have an embassy open in Kiev right now. Of course. No, I agree totally. And, you know, I mean, I, it's baffling to me that we don't. I, I mean, I think what's happened is we've let the security people essentially begin running our foreign policy. But Handcuff us. Yeah. I, I mean, you talk about the importance of, you know, not abstruse strategies or abstractions, but uh, reemphasis on fundamental skills. And uh, when you talk about statecraft, the skills you identify are sensing, adjusting, exploiting and doing rather than planning and theorizing. And you quote Sir Isaiah Berlin, the late uh, Isaiah Berlin a philosopher, and oh, by the way, a, uh, a very good diplomat when he was uh, in the British embassy uh, in Washington during World War II. Uh, his dispatches home have been collected and published. And for anyone interested in diplomacy, I commend them. They're some of the most perceptive dispatches from a diplomat that I've ever uh, read. But you, you quote Isaiah Berlin saying, understanding rather than uh, knowledge, the ability to tell what fits with what, what can be done in given circumstances and what cannot, and what means will work in what situations and how far. And it seemed to me when I read that, it uh, echoed many conversations you and I had in government together, whether uh, leaving the situation room or flying in the the uh, G5 that the Department of Defense put at our disposal to uh, travel uh, to a variety of garden spots around the world, uh, some real garden spots, some not, in which we talked about the importance not so much of knowledge, but judgment. And could you talk a little bit more about that? I'm tempted to ask you to do so because you were my teacher on that one. Uh, You know, the the irony in all this is uh, obviously... Both you and I are men of ideas, and Lord knows Isaiah Berlin was a man of ideas, a uh, tremendous student of philosophy. I think the the one thing we can pat ourselves on the back for is I don't think we've fallen into the trap that a lot of intellectuals do fall into of overvaluing ideas or overestimating their importance. I guess, you know, for me, one of the things I took away from those trips was and this was, to be honest, this was watching you deal particularly with our counterparts in France at a time when the relationship was had been extremely scratchy. Developing personal relationships, which are not about backslapping, but creating mutual trust and, and mutual understanding of what you can ask for and what you can't ask for. And what, you know, your ally or partner can legitimately expect of you, what they can't, being clear about communicating that. Let's give a, a concrete example from the Ukraine war. I think one of the unpleasant little surprises from the point of view of American diplomacy was that the United Arab Emirates did not stand with us on Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And they did not stand with us on increasing the world's oil supply at a time when we wanted it. Why didn't they do that? Well, um, there seemed to have been a number of things at work, but one of them was, if you remember, they were getting hit by Houthi missiles out of Yemen. And it took 37 days for the CENTCOM commander to show up there to a country that we say is really a very, very important partner in the Gulf to say, how can we help protect you? 
Now that's, you know, there's nothing grand strategic about that. There's no big idea there. With, there's kind of basic competence, and I'm not blaming Frank McKenzie. I, you know, this is a, a larger um, failure at the center, you know, of saying you got to maintain these relationships. And when a partner's in trouble, you, you know, you got to bail them out. And then you have a right to expect that they step up when you need them as well. I think this is an example of where ideas held too fiercely and too long can get in the way of execution, as you were saying. So the Biden administration came in with a determination to re-enter the joint comprehensive plan of action with Iran. They still may do that. I hope they don't, but they might. And part of that effort was to send some signals that this was a different administration than the Trump administration. We see that kind of station identification, of course, in all transitions. But part of that was to de-designate the Houthis in Yemen uh, as a terrorist organization. Now, the reward for that was not actually greater flexibility in negotiations. The reward for that was a pattern of missile attacks and drone attacks on critical infrastructure, both in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but particularly in, in the UAE, which didn't even have combat forces fighting in Yemen anymore. They'd pulled those out a couple of years ago. And the UAE had called on the administration to redesignate the Houthis in response. And actually, Secretary Blinken belatedly, but appropriately, recently met with, with MBZ, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, and said, I'm sorry, we made a mistake. We should have you know, listened to you and, and responded to your concerns more, more quickly. Uh, but yes, I mean, I think, you know, that's the kind of fundamental policy competence that, you know, I think we've lost. And this is something you and I talked about in one of the very early shows in this podcast uh, with our former colleague, Philip Zelico, about restoring basic policy competence. Um, and, and you talk about it again in your foreign affairs piece, that sound foreign policy making rests on the basics of bureaucratic behavior, clear and concise memoranda, crisply run meetings, well-disseminated conclusions, succinct and unambiguous guidance from above, and, you know, good management of that process. And you point to one specific example, and I don't, you know, mean to dunk on, on Jake Sullivan, who's a friend and who's the national security advisor, but you rightly point out that press reports indicate during the Afghanistan withdrawal, which was botched and a disaster, he was reported by the New York Times to be only getting two hours of sleep a night. And you contrast that with President Roosevelt's uh, and General Eisenhower's behavior on the eve of, of D-Day, when D-Day was being launched. And it brought to mind a story I first heard when I worked in the Pentagon about General Marshall packing his bags at five o'clock one night to head home. And uh, his young military aide who just joined him said, what are you doing, General Marshall? And he said, son, I'm going home. And he said, but sir, there's a war in Europe and there's a war in Pacific. And Marshall looked at him and said, son, it's going to be a long war. The, I mean, the first things we manage are ourselves. And I think both you and I have seen in government a tendency sometimes for people not to manage themselves and not to even manage their uh, their subordinates very well by kind of running them ragged and exhausting them so that when there are genuine crises that require, you know, people to be, you know, up all the time, they're, you know, they're not um, equipped with the reserves of, you know, strength and, and adrenaline uh, to do it. I used to be fond of saying that academic social science hadn't proven many non-trivial propositions about international affairs, but it's proven one conclusively, 
tired people make bad decisions. But you know, it, it's interesting. I think executives um, in many fields know this. When I became dean, I, I asked the school to give me an executive coach who was invaluable. We had some very, very difficult things we had to do. Uh, and it wasn't that I didn't feel prepared for the job, but I wanted to, to do my best. Um, and so the way athletes do, I, I said, I'd like to get a, a coach. The first thing she did was to sit me down and say, okay, let's talk about your sleep schedule. Let's talk about your exercise schedule. Let's talk about what you're going to do to kind of free your mind up um, at the end of the day. And, and you're right, people in government often don't do that. There's another piece of aspect of judgment too that, that I don't want us to um, lose sight of. You know, you and I began this uh, podcast with a pretty detailed military analysis of what's going on. And you might say, well, listen, you know, isn't that sort of below your level of, of interest? And the answer is no, because actually on, you, you need to know which details are really important. And you don't want to be interested in all details all the time. But to understand what's going on, you have to have a fairly detailed grasp of things on occasion. And, and you also need, and I think this is a critical part of judgment, is a kind of skeptical look at received wisdom. In this case, it was the received wisdom that the Russians would just roll right over Ukraine, which I think was a pretty widely held set of beliefs. I think part of good judgment would say, well, why exactly do you think that? And where might it go wrong? You know, I can see we're, we're running short on time. I wanted to ask you a, um, about the broader implications of this war. Uh-huh. You know, I, yeah. I think I, I staked out a claim that I thought this was the most consequential war of my lifetime. Would you agree with that? Um, and if, so if, and if, if, you, if you could just first reflect more broadly on what you think the significance of this war is. And then I thought maybe we could narrow it down a bit and talk about another topic we're very interested in, and that's Taiwan. What are the implications of this war for Taiwan, you know, strategic ambiguity yeah. and all that? Well, I, I do agree with you that it's the most consequential war of, of our time. And, and I know that that uh, will you know, potentially open both you and me to the charge of being Eurocentric. I mean, there, there's no been no shortage of other very important and consequential conflicts. I mean, the, the Syrian uh, civil war, for one, which let loose you know enormous waves of refugees that have destabilized European politics uh, and our own, I would argue, and had in, you know, in important ongoing consequences, not just in the Middle East, but beyond, including Russia's military intervention in partnership with uh, Iran. But I do think this is uh, the most consequential because, first of all, it's a conflict involving one of our two great power competitors right now. It's unleashed an even larger movement of people. I think there have been something like 10 million now, I'm beginning to lose count, of people displaced, either who have left the country, although some are returning, or been internally displaced because of the violence. The volume of fires is just enormous. We have consumed in supplying Ukraine about a quarter of our stock of stingers, which barely has an open production line, and about a third of our javelins. And that's just at this point. And the estimates are at current levels of production, it will take something like uh, three to five years to uh, replace the javelins because we're not only providing equipment to Ukraine, we're also making whole some of our NATO allies who are providing 
Soviet era equipment to Ukraine. And so there's an upside to that, which is in a, an instance of Hegel's uh, cunning of, of history. Putin you know, entered this war presumably because he was at least afraid of, or at least said he was afraid of growing NATO military power on his borders. And what he's doing is uh, bringing about precisely that, the you know, uh, in soon to be membership of Finland and Sweden in NATO and uh, and a more modern, lethal, uh, interoperable NATO force on his border. The scale of this is, I think, quite big. It's required the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kath Hicks, to meet with uh, defense industry to see you know, how they can uh, scale up uh, to produce um, more modern munitions because the consumption rates have been high. This, by the way, is something that uh, we predicted in the uh, National Defense Strategy Commission report that I co-chaired with former CNO Gary Ruffhead four years ago. We drew attention to this fact that there's an inability to uh, surge production of munitions and there are complications with mobilizing uh, the defense industrial base to produce the, the number of munitions we need. And, you know, the same would be true in a Taiwan context, of course, uh, if there were a conflict between China and Taiwan, uh, the consumption of munitions would be different kinds of munitions, things like JASM, ER, and long-range anti-ship missiles. Those kinds of things would be expended in enormous numbers, perhaps javelins as well. So uh, all of this, I think, you know, has to be borne in mind. And of course, the knock-on effects of a clearly premeditated, unprovoked, very highly scripted war of aggression this is something, as you point out in your foreign affairs article, China's looking very carefully at this, and we hope they're going to draw the right lessons. I participated in a briefing with a senior defense official who asserted that this was inducing a lot of caution in the PRC uh, as they contemplate what, what it would take to you know, launch a amphibious operation to uh, reduce you know, Taiwan, but maybe... That's not true. I mean, maybe what they've learned is, you know, nuclear threats work to deter the United States and its allies. You know, rapid imposition of a blockade would test that proposition because it would force the U.S. into a position where it might be, you know, in con direct conflict with the PRC. And that uh, decapitating, you know, as you mentioned at the outset, killing Zelensky was something the Russians intended to do. They failed to do it. But the Chinese probably have learned a lesson that President Tsai or her successor can't be allowed to rally support you know, against an invasion and, and has to be taken out early. So as a result of that, my colleague Frank Miller and I have uh, written a, an article um, in which we suggest that the strategy uh, of calculated ambiguity about whether or not we would defend Taiwan, which was a result of the normalization of relations with the PRC in 1979 and the termination of the U.S. Republic of China mutual defense treaty that was negotiated in 1954 by John Foster Dulles, uh, which had an Article 5 guarantee, gave way to something more ambiguous, which was domestic law, the U.S. domestic law, the Taiwan Relations Act, which said we had to provide Taiwan with the material for its own defense, but left unsaid the question of, of whether we would defend Taiwan. And this was justified under the so-called One China policy, the, the Shanghai communique, which uh, Nixon and Kissinger negotiated with uh, Zhou Enlai, that essentially said, we believe there's one 
we believe that Chinese on both sides of the strait believe that there's one China, and we want to see them resolve that uh, their differences peacefully. Frank and I suggested we ought to be very clear that if the PRC chooses to forcefully try and, and resolve the differences across the strait, that the U.S. will defend Taiwan. And the lesson we draw have drawn from this Ukraine uh, crisis and war is that you need to get the weapons uh, and munitions that we've been you know, talking about there now, not wait until the conflict erupts. You need to start training, uh, have U.S. trainers there uh, to train uh, Taiwanese forces now to make clear that we will defend Taiwan and that the PRC would be very foolish to, to force the issue. You know, I, I agree with you. I think that's a, that is the right conclusion. You know, one of the things we may have learned is, you know, by not being nearly as forceful in supporting Ukraine, certainly in the Trump administration, I, I would say under in the Obama administration too, and then a bit of hesitancy in the Biden administration, you, you want to be very clear about what you're going to do. I'm sure the Chinese will be going to school on this war um, in their very thorough way. I, I would say, though, two other things about it. First, this war is going to leave Russia, no matter how it turns out on the ground, a pariah state. A and in some ways, it'll be like a vast North Korea. Uh, that is to say, you know, the, the West in particular, but also places like Japan, Australia, Singapore even, will want to have nothing to do with it. It'll still have connections to other countries and on a sort of a transactional basis, which probably the most important is India. But in other ways, it'll be a pariah. But the second thing, and this, with this I'd like to finish, I think the, you know, the big question is, what do people make of the West after this? And that's why it's so important to see this through. I think one of the best deterrents to a Chinese invasion of Taiwan is if they look around and say, wow, the United States and Europe acted decisively to defeat Russia in an area that it thought was part of itself. Um, and it did so at some risk, but it also did so very effectively. I think that's within our grasp. And I think the world will be a better place if that message gets across to everybody. Well, I agree. And I, I think, unfortunately for today, that's probably the best place for us to leave this conversation. Still a lot to say about the return of statecraft. So I'm, I'm sure that's a theme uh, to which we'll return in future editions of Shield of the Republic. But I want to thank you, my partner, uh, for joining us from Jerusalem. I know that the Sabbath is soon to begin. So um, I want to let you and Judy go and enjoy it. And we will be back with Shield of the Republic in a couple of weeks. And thank you, Eric, and the Shield of the Republic team will always make this happen. Thanks. We'll see you.